good morning, church. And thank you, praise team, worship team. I love that song, Is He Worthy? To remind yourself of those questions. Does the Father truly love us? He does. Does His Spirit move among us? He does. And does Jesus, our Messiah, hold forever those He loves? He does. And does He intend to dwell again with us? He does. What a great, great song. One of my favorite songs. If you have your Bibles, you could open up to Mark chapter 10. We're starting in on a little mini-series here leading up to Easter. You know, you're only going to follow someone if you want to go where they're going. Uh, our family went to Magic Mountain recently, you know, and we would head to these different rides, and depending on who in the family wanted to go to that ride depend, would result in if they would follow us or not. Uh, so sometimes we'd want to go to fun little rides that everyone could do, so, you know, we led them and the kids followed us. But every now and then we'd come to a ride where it's like, where, which ride are we going to? Oh, we're going to go to Lex Luthor's Drop of Doom. That is a 415-foot drop from, you know, the very height. And so some kids, when they hear that that's where you're leading them, they just stop. They're not going to take another step in that direction. You know, sometimes tears would fill their eyes. Sometimes that would be Rhonda and I when the kids were trying to get us on other rides. But you're only going to follow if you want to go where someone's going. You know, one of the problems that Jesus faced in his earthly ministry was that people didn't really know where he was going. And so they were following him for a variety of reasons. I mean, some people just followed him for a free meal. Say, I heard this guy will feed thousands with just a few loaves of bread. Some people followed Jesus just to have him fix a problem for them. Some people followed Jesus because they thought it meant that there'd be some sort of social reform or political change. But as Jesus' destination became more and more clear, fewer and fewer people followed him. And I think one of the problems the church faces today is that many people aren't really clear on where Jesus is leading us. Some people still come to Jesus for a free meal or to fix a problem or to, because it's going to provide some sort of social or political reform. But while on earth, Jesus had one destination in mind. And it's what we're celebrating as we lead up to Easter. He was going one place. He was going to the cross. And he was going to lay his life down for sinful people that don't deserve it. And Jesus really has the same goal today. And the church should have the same goal today. You should have the same goal today. That what you want more than anything is to see people freed from their sin people enjoying fellowship with their Father, people looking forward to not an eternity of judgment, but an eternal life with God. That's what Jesus came to do. That's what he came to provide, and that's what we should be about as his followers. And so the crucial question we're going to see this morning, Jesus is going to ask it twice, is what do you want Jesus to do for you? Do you want him to free you from your sin? So that you can sacrificially serve like he does? Or are you just hoping that he fixes your problems or makes you feel good about yourself? And so the title of this message, the pressing question that we're going to see is, what do you want Jesus to do for you? And we're going to see two very different answers to that question in this passage that we'll look at. And the answer to that question determines, will you follow him or not? And so let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, it's a joy to be with your people. And it's a joy to look at your son. And to be reminded of what he did for us. That we get to celebrate communion together. We get to remember that he gave his body, and he gave his blood, to free us from our sins. And he did it for the joy set before him. No one twisted his arm. No one was forcing him to go. He did it voluntarily to please you and to rescue us. And that's really the same life that he wants to live. 
He wants us to be able to lay down our lives for the sake of others. He wants us to actually follow him in a life of sacrificial service for the benefit of those around us. So Lord, may we see clearly again where Jesus was going when he was on this earth. And may we follow him. And may it be our delight to follow him. May we voluntarily follow him to the places that he goes. Lord, help us to see him clearly. If we see him clearly, if you can open our eyes to see him as he truly is, then we will follow. And so do that work that only you can do through your word. In Christ's name, amen. Mark chapters 8 through 10. Uh, it's really kind of the, the heart of Mark's gospel. And it starts with the healing of a blind man, and it ends with the healing of a blind man. And both of those healings are really object lessons for everything that Jesus is trying to do in between. He's trying to fix your eyesight. He's trying to help you not see the world as you see it, but to see the world as he sees it. He wants you not to look at people the way that you look at them, but to look at people the way that he looks at them. He wants you to think not about your mission, but about his mission. He's all about, in these chapters, clearing your vision, giving you sight, rescuing you from the darkness of your blindness so that you see things the way that he sees them. And so we're going to see a few different things in this passage. First, see the determination of Jesus to glorify himself through sacrificial service. Look at verse 32. It says they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles." And they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus is determined to accomplish his mission. Look at verse 32. It says, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. You can just replace Jerusalem with the word the cross, because that's what is in Jesus' mind. Yes, it's a city, but he's going to Jerusalem so that he can go to the cross. And it says Jesus was walking ahead of them, right? Jesus is leading the way. He's not waiting for them. Whether you come with me or not, my focus is set. I'm determined. I'm going to the cross. Now, what exactly is, the disciples are thinking, what exactly is Jesus determined to do? They're a little bit confused, right? Some were amazed at the end of verse 32, and some were afraid. Right? They're astounded. They're, they're, he's saying things that are unexpected. They're world-altering. It doesn't make sense to them. What are some of those things? Well, he has a conversation with a rich man a little bit earlier, and look what he says in verse 25. He says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle... Imagine that. Then for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. So what's the source of the disciples' confusion? The source is, I don't understand the things that Jesus is saying, right? In, in my mind, if you're rich, that means you're blessed by God. That means you're going to heaven, right? You're in the kingdom if you're receiving all of these earthly riches. And Jesus says, actually, it's easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They're like, what are you talking about? It's like, who can be saved? If a rich man can't be saved, who can be saved? He's like, actually, no one. It is impossible. Humanly speaking, for someone to be saved is impossible. And his disciples are like, what are you talking about? What do you mean I can't get my own salvation? 
I thought if I was a good person that God would accept me. And so he's, Jesus is saying all of these things that don't make any sense to them. But what is Jesus' concern? What's grieving him? He wants people to enter the kingdom of God. He wants people to be saved. He's grieved that this rich man goes away sorrowful because he's unwilling to part with his riches. But Jesus is determined to save people. He's determined to go to the cross. Now, some disciples, it says that they were afraid. And I think that's because this is the third time that Jesus has told them, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, to be murdered. And so some are like, I'm not sure I want to follow you. If that's where you're going, I don't know that I want to go with you on that journey. That doesn't sound great. So people are confused, people are afraid, people are amazed. But what does Jesus say? Verse 32. It says, taking the twelve again. So again, he's doing this. He began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. Jesus, I mean, he's not hiding this, right? He says, look, see, behold, this is what I came to do. I actually came to lay down my life for your sake. What is Jesus doing? I want people to enter the kingdom of God. I want people to be saved. And it's impossible left to your own devices. So I'm going to provide the way for you to be saved. I'm going to die in your place. I'm going to suffer so that you don't have to suffer. And that's what Jesus is determined to do. Now it says the Son of Man will rise again. And we look forward to celebrating that in just a couple weeks. But note that ultimate victory and glory will come through suffering. He does, he will be victorious, but the road to victory is suffering. And the, the amazing thing is, is he doesn't deserve the suffering. He didn't do anything to deserve the suffering, but he wants to suffer in your place so that you don't have to. He lays down his life so you don't have to lose your life. He absorbs God's wrath so you don't have to absorb God's wrath. And he's determined to do it. And he wants his disciples to know, that's what I'm all about. That's where I'm going. That's my mission, to give my life on the cross. So the question for us is, do you see what Jesus came to do? He came to suffer in your place. He came to make the impossible possible. He came so that you could enter the kingdom of God, so that you could experience salvation. And why did he do it? Because he loves us. He wants us to be with him forever. We didn't deserve it. I mean, when we sing that song, does the Father truly love us? He does. And you, you might ask the question, why? We don't do anything to deserve his love. But he loves us. And he sent his son, and the son willingly came to lay down his life for us. And so as you think about that question, what do you want Jesus to do for you? Is this your answer? This is what I want. This is what I need. I need him to suffer in my place so that I can be saved. You know, we're very quick to forget the reason that Jesus came. And we're not the only ones who are quick to forget why Jesus came. In fact, one of the chief marks of sin is that it blinds you to just how self-centered we can become, even as followers of Christ. That's exactly what happens next in verses 35 and following. So we need to see the destructive bondage of your blindness to the glory of sacrificial service. Look at verse 35. Now remember what Jesus just said, right? I'm going to go. And I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be mocked, spit upon, flogged and killed. Verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. 
What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that stuff, mocked, spit upon, killed. That, that, sounds, that sounds rough. So, but could you do for us whatever we want you to do? It's like, what are you talking about? I mean, this is like, you know, you have a really rough day as a parent, right? You and your kids, you know, go back and forth, you know, and things are, go things are going wrong. And then you're sitting at the dinner table and your kid's like, so uh, are we still eating ice cream for dessert or what? It's like, are you not aware of the things that are happening around you? I'm going to be mocked, spit on, whipped, and killed. Yeah, so um, about us, so what can you do for us? And, I mean, they're not just asking for some little thing. It's like they basically want a blank check from Jesus, do for us whatever we want. Now, just as unbelievable as that question is Jesus' response. Now, how would you respond to those guys? Like, what's the matter with you? I'm going to smack those guys, right? I mean, the fact that he doesn't just kind of smoke these guys right on the spot is as amazing as the fact that he's going to go to the cross to die for their sins. And what do they say? Hey, what does Jesus say? He says in verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? Right, that's the first time this question's asked in this passage. What do you want me to do for you? What do they want? Verse 37, nothing big. They said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. They're, I mean, they're going to shoot their shot. Hey, you got Jesus' attention. You might as well go for it. Right? What are they asking for? We want, you know, the highest positions of authority that you can give. That's all. Nothing big. I mean, Ephesians 1.20 says that the Father is going to put his Son at his right hand. And they're saying, so, and what we want you to do for us, Jesus, is that, you know, we want you to put us at your right hand and your left hand, right? Yeah, I mean, you'll be the center of attention, but when everyone gazes upon you in all your glory and all your majesty, I mean, they'll be looking at you, but we want them to see us, too. That's all we want. I mean, do you see how sin blinds you to the point where you come to Jesus for selfish reasons? I mean, James and John don't care what's going to happen to Jesus. He just told them he's going to be murdered. And they say, yeah, well, what, what about us? What are you going to give us? They want to use Jesus to further their own glory. And how often do we basically do the same thing? I mean, we come to Jesus to get something from him. Solve my problems. Give me glory. Get me out of this trial. I mean, we don't really care that Jesus' goal is actually to cure us from our blindness so that we serve people like he serves people. Just give me something. And so we sort of go through the motions until we need something. Then we go to him, and we get really serious. And then when we get what we want, it's kind of just back to doing what we want again. You know, do we want to use Jesus or do we want to follow Jesus? You know, are you looking to Jesus just to kick an addiction, land a job, get your wife and kids back? Or do you really want to follow Jesus in a life of sacrificial service? Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus does bless us. I mean, he gives us all kinds of things. But why do we really, what do we really want from him? Do we just want the blessings? Or do we want what he actually came to do and what he actually came to provide? So sin blinds you to the point where you just see Jesus as a means of personal gain. Sin also blinds us that we have an inflated view of ourselves. Going back to our passage, verse 38, so ask, after they ask this, again, how would you respond to that request? But Jesus indulges them. Verse 38, he says to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? I mean, Jesus knows how he's going to get that position with the Father. I'm going to drink a cup of the wrath of God. I'm going to be baptized. I'm going to be submerged into suffering. And he asked them, are, are you able to drink that cup? 
Are you able to live that kind of life? Are you able to do the things that I'm about to do? That's how you get a position like that, is through sacrificial service. Are you ready to do that? Now, amazingly, look at their response. And they said to him, we are able. You're able. That, you think you're able to do the very things that Jesus is about to do. I mean, that's how blinding our sin is. Oh, yeah, we could do that. No problem. We could do that just like you're about to do that. And they have no idea what they're even asking. Now, the amazing thing is Jesus will actually transform them to where they will do those things. That's what he says. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Not too long from now, James is going to lose his life for the sake of Christ. And John's going to live a life of persecution and oppression and suffering for the sake of his Savior. But right here in this moment, they have no idea. And they think they are able in and of themselves to do these things, and yet they're blind. I mean, do you see how your sin blinds you to where you have this inflated view of yourself? That you have the strength within yourself to do whatever Christ calls you to do? And usually when we feel that way, what happens? We fall flat on our face. Like the disciples did not too long ago when they were trying to cast out a demon and they weren't able to do it. And what does Jesus say? This kind can only come out through prayer. It never occurred to the disciples this is beyond our strength. Never occurred to them, hey, maybe we should ask for God's help to cast out this demon. No, they thought, we got this. And that's what sin does. It's a destructive bondage that sin has you in. Now, maybe you look at James and John and you think, well, I'm not like them. I would never be so audacious to ask Jesus for these high positions of authority. Or I would never say that I could live the kind of life that Jesus lived for me. But sin's bondage is more pervasive than you think. Let's look at some of the conversations that were happening as Jesus is going to the cross. Look at the beginning of chapter 10, verse 1. It says, He left there and went to the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up in order to test him and asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, if you're reading through Mark's gospel, I mean, he's, he's very intentional in this section. Like, everything's about discipleship. What does it really mean to follow Jesus? Am I going to suffer like he does for the sake of other people? And at first glance, this whole conversation seems like out of place. Like, why would Mark even put this here? Like, why this question about divorce and remarriage and all of these kinds of things? But he's doing it to provide as stark a contrast as possible between what's on Jesus' mind and what's often on the minds of his followers. I mean, what is Jesus doing? I'm going to the cross to lay down my life for people that don't deserve it. Who are the people that he's going to lay down his life for? The people that want nothing to do with him. The people that are planning his murder. The people that do murder him. All of these people, he's going to lay down his life for them. What's on the Pharisees' mind? Hey, can I divorce my wife for any reason I want to? You are blind. I'm going to the cross to lay down my life for the world who doesn't deserve it. And you can't love one person. You are blind. And how do we get to this point, right? We make these vows in marriage for better or worse, for richer, for poorer, for sickness and in health. Till when? Till death do us part. We're saying, I'm going to love you no matter what. One person. I'm going to love you no matter what. And what happens? I'm going to love you no matter what really means I'm going to love you as long as I get something out of it. And at some point in marriage, someone's not going to hold up their end of the bargain. Maybe a husband is not going to lead his family well. 
Maybe a wife is going to stop respecting her husband. And eventually a spouse will think, well, I didn't sign up for this. Actually, you did. That's exactly what you signed up for. In sickness and in health, for better or worse, till death do us part, I'm going to love you no matter what. That's what you signed up for. You know, oftentimes the most dangerous place to be in a marriage is when you're the one who's been sinned against. Because you might entertain thoughts like, well, I'm not going to love him until he gets his act together. I'm not going to love her until she starts to show me some respect. And you start to feel justified in your lack of love for your spouse. And you start to entertain questions like, is it lawful for someone to divorce his wife for any reason? We're blind. We're blind to just how dark sin is. Look at the next conversation he has. Verse 13. They were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter into it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. I mean, how do we view even our own children? The disciples are rebuking and hindering children from coming to Jesus. Children are supposed to be the ones that we love unconditionally. Because we see how vulnerable they are, how dependent and needy they are. But what happens? Raising kids is hard work. And little by little, you start to maybe have that question, is it worth it? I'm seeing them more as a hindrance to me than a blessing. You know, maybe it started off with just kind of cleaning up coloring on the wall, but then it escalates into fights with siblings Teenagers that give you one-word answers, kids that want nothing to do with you, even adult children, and you might start to feel like, what am I getting out of this? And a person's heart can grow frustrated and detached, even from their own children. And you start to see your children as a frustration rather than an object of love. Why does that happen? Because we're blind. We're blind to the glory of sacrificial service. Next conversation, verse 17. He was setting out on a journey, and a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. So talk about blindness. He said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, right? He came up to him asking, what good, what good thing must I do? So here's the good thing you must do. Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now, what should the response be? Amen, selling it all, let's go. 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He's not willing. It's like, Jesus, I'll follow you as long as it doesn't cost me anything that I like. But as soon as it demands something that you love, I'm not going to follow you. I mean, here it was money, but money really is just the opportunity for everything else, right? So in your life, it might be pleasure, entertainment, comfort, security. Are we willing to lay all those things aside to follow Jesus? Or are we too interested in what they provide for us? And if we are, we're blind. We're blind to what Jesus really came to do. So do you see the destructive bondage of your blindness? I mean, Jesus says how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. We can't see how enslaved we are to money. We can't see how hard our hearts become when we struggle to love our kids. 
We can't see how self-centered we are when we start to entertain questions about, could I divorce my spouse? So what do you want Jesus to do for you? Do you want him to fix just one of these problems? Or do you want him to cure your blindness? So that you start to see the world and other people the way he does. Now, we are hopelessly blind, and many times we can't see how bad the bondage is. And even if we could, Jesus says it's impossible to get out of this situation. We're powerless to change, but praise the Lord, he is powerful enough to, get, to change the impossible to the possible. And that's exactly what he wants to do. That's why he came. Look at verse 41. See the desire of Jesus to free you for a life of sacrificial service. Verse 41. When the ten heard it, so we're back, James and John asked Jesus for this request. Jesus entertains them. So the other ten are listening to this conversation that Jesus is having with them. And when they heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Why? Now maybe it was because they were so appalled at the insensitivity of James and John. How could you ask Jesus that question after he just said that he was going to die for you? You think that's what they were thinking? Probably not. Or maybe they were just aghast at how outlandish the request was. You wanted to sit at his right hand and his left hand? How could you ask for something like that? Do you think that's what they were angry at? No. What's been going on this whole time, through this whole conversation? What kind of art, you know, conversations have the disciples had with each other? Which one of us is the greatest? So they see James and John, hey, you're going directly to Jesus. You're asking for our positions. What makes you think you deserve those two spots? We want those spots. That's the conversations that the disciples are having. They're furious because they thought they were just as worthy of honor as James and John. And so how does Jesus respond to all of them? Verse 42. Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I mean, Jesus gets them all, like, okay, guys, come over here. You're acting like the world You're being like the Gentiles. Why do you want these positions? So you can lord it over people. So you can exercise authority. That's what the world does with power. That's not what my disciples are going to be about. My disciples are going to be about service. Jesus is saying, stop. Stop racing for the top. Right? The church should not be a place where we play king of the hill. Right Where we do whatever it takes to sort of rip people down, throw them aside so that we can be at the top. Not in my kingdom, Jesus says. In my kingdom, you don't race to the top, you race to the bottom. Who can be a servant of all? He says in verse 43, it is not this way among you. Greatness is measured in service. That's the answer to James and John. You want these positions? Here's how you get these positions. You become a servant of all. This is his answer to the other ten that are upset with James and John. You want greatness? This is how you get it. You become a slave of everyone. What does that look like? It's really, the word is like a waiter. Like you become like a waiter for everyone else. That's how you see yourself, with everyone. I exist to meet your real needs. And a good waiter, right? Does a good waiter just sort of sit there until you have a need? No, they're attentive. 
They're at the table. Hey, is your, you know, your drink's getting a little low. Can I fill that up for you? It's like, are you done with this plate, right? They're intentional. They're attentive. And Jesus says, that's how you should be with everyone. That we're concerned about each other's physical and spiritual needs. If someone needs a ride or a meal or a place to stay or some help to get back on their feet, that's why I'm here. I'm a servant. And we should be quick to do those things. And spiritual needs as well. If someone needs encouragement, if someone needs a shoulder to cry on, that's why we're here. We're here to meet each other's needs. We're servants of one another. Or if someone's in sin, what does a servant do if he sees someone in sin? Go talk about him behind their back. No. You go to the person. Because you want what's best for them. And that sin that they're struggling with, that's not best for them. So I'm going to go with humility, and I'm going to go with gentleness, and I'm going to call them back from that sin. If there's disunity in the body, I know someone's upset at me, or I'm upset at somebody. How does a servant deal with that? They go right for it. I'm not going to sit back and let there be disunity among Christ's people. I'm a servant. I'm going to go seek to be reconciled to my brother or my sister. Are we willing to lovingly confront one another in sin or rebuke people when necessary? Do we come to church as a servant looking to encourage one another, build each other up? Jesus says that's what greatness is. A race to the bottom, to be slave of all. Verse 44 says, whoever would be first among you, right? First place. You want to be first place? Become a slave of all. I mean, what's the scope of our service? Everyone. I think he's talking not just about believers. This is believers and unbelievers. I go through my life as a servant. And that's really what he was asking the 12 to do as they followed him. Come along with me and become a servant of all. You know, ministry is service. The people that need care, aging parents, children with a lot of needs, sins that need confronting, hard conversations that need to happen, those aren't hindrances to ministry. Those are ministry. That's what service is. Caring for the people around you. I mean, think about Jesus. I mean, he was singularly focused, right? I'm going to the cross. I'm going to lay down my life. That's why I came. I'm going to accomplish that mission. But every step of the way, he's always aware of the needs of those around him. The woman at the well. Nicodemus who comes at night. Whole towns that come to him when he's tired, and he heals everyone. And that, those weren't hindrances to his ministry. Those were his ministry as he headed to the cross. And so may we see ourselves in the same way. We follow a Savior who serves all those around him. May we be the same. Anywhere and everywhere, servants at home, servants at the church, servants at work, servants at the grocery store, servants at the park, that's who we are. I mean, could you imagine a church? I mean, Jesus had 12 followers, and when he worked in their heart to change them, to love, to serve the way that he served, what happened to the world? It was totally turned upside down. We've got 400, 500 plus here. Imagine if God could get a hold of our hearts and have each one of us think of ourselves as a servant of everyone around me. What he could do with a church like that. Jesus calls you to follow him in sacrificial service. Why should they do that? Why should you be a slave of all? Verse 45, for even the Son of Man who deserves service, right? He deserves all of our service. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. He's our example. Why should I live that way? Because it's how your Savior lived for you. He came to be served, not to be served, but to serve. I mean, think about how that changes all those conversations that Jesus had throughout this chapter. Why does a husband stop loving his wife? Because he sees his marriage as a place to be served rather than to serve. 
And what does he need? He needs to remember that his marriage is primarily about serving, not being served. So now, if your spouse doesn't love you the way that you like, what do you do? I love him anyway, because that's how Jesus loved me. He didn't wait for me to love him, to lay down his life for me. He took the initiative. So I love my spouse, even if they're not loving me the way that I would want. Why does a parent stop loving their children? Because at some point, their children, they see them as an opportunity to be served rather than to serve. And what do they need to remember? That they remember their children are opportunities not to be served, but to serve. And so when your kids are unappreciative and disrespectful and hard-hearted, what do you do? You love them anyway. Because that's how your Savior loves you. Why does someone see their money as solely a means for their own comfort and security? Because they've seen their resources as opportunities for them to be served rather than to serve. And so what do we need? We need to remember that our money is not an opportunity for us to be served. It's an opportunity for us to serve others. And so when you're blessed with finances beyond your needs, what do you do? I give them away. I'm a servant. And God's given me these great resources. And there's a lot of needs. And a servant is going to look to, I'm going to pump out as much as I can for other people's needs. Now, as you look at those things, those are hard things. Those are impossible things, humanly speaking. To love someone who doesn't love you back. To serve someone who's not going to serve you. To give away the things that you could use on yourself for your own pleasure and security. Who can do those things? Again, humanly speaking, these things are impossible. But Christ can cure your blindness so that you want to do this that you want to be a servant rather than being served. And that's what he says at the end of verse 45. He came not to be served, but to serve, and to what? Give his life as a ransom for many, right? Jesus sees that it's impossible. Jesus sees that you're blind. You can't get out of the situation that you're in. That's the idea of a ransom, right? When do you give someone a ransom? You think of, like, the kidnap movies, right? I mean, someone's ki- your loved one gets kidnapped. How are you going to get them out? I'm going to pay the ransom so that they become free. That's what Jesus said he came to do. I came to free you. I see that you're in bondage to your sin. I see that there's no way out. So I'm going to pay the ransom so that you can be released from your blindness, <laughs> so that you can see me for who I am, so that you see other people the way I see them, so you see what this world is all about. That's why I came, to pay your ransom so that you might see and live the kind of life that I lived. Is that what you want Jesus to do for you? Because that's what he's offering. I will rescue you. I will ransom you. I will remove your blindness so that you see everything the way that I do. Is that what you want? Or do you just want a quick fix to a problem? or a free meal, or the government to teach different things. Why are you following him? Lastly, verses 46 and following. See how Jesus heals the blind so that they follow him in sacrificial service. Verse 46, he gives them a picture of what needs to happen with all of his followers. They came to Jericho, And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And just like they did with the children, many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? 
The same question that he asked James and John when James and John came to him. What was their response? We want glory. We want honor. We want to sit at your right hand and your left hand. That's what we want. Jesus asked this blind man, what do you want me to do for you? And he's already told him, what does he want? What does he want? What does he say twice? What is he calling out to Jesus for? Mercy. I want mercy. Have mercy on me. I don't want power. I don't want prestige. I don't need honor. I want mercy. I don't want what I deserve. I want you to heal me so that I can see. I want to see people the way that you see them. I want to see my life the way that you see your life. I want mercy. That's a true follower of Christ. I want mercy. That's what I want. I'm in sin. I can't get out. It's impossible. I've tried. I've made a mess of my life trying. I need mercy. Would you give me mercy? And praise the Lord, that's exactly what Jesus gives. That's what he wants to give. He says in verse 51, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. I want to see. And this is a pick, this is an object lesson, right? It's not just he, I, I want to see, right? I want my sight. No, it's like this is Mark saying, this is what you need to say to Jesus. I want to see. I need mercy so that I can see. Because I am blind. And what does Jesus say? Go your way. Your faith has made you well. Because you see. You see what I came to give. I came to give mercy. And you believe that. And your faith has made you well. And what happens? Immediately, he recovered his sight and, with, and followed him on the way. When he says he followed him, know what he's saying, right? He's not saying like, oh yeah, he just got up and he followed. No, 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 no. He saw Jesus. He saw where Jesus was going and he followed him. I want, if you can heal my sight, if you can give me mercy, I will follow you wherever you want me to go. I'll follow you to the cross. I'll follow you to a life of suffering because of what you did for me. And that's our response. Is that what we want Jesus to do for us? Are you coming to Jesus just for yourself? For glory, honor, solve some earthly problem? Or are you coming to him for mercy for your blindness? So that you might embrace a life of sacrificial service like he did. What do you want? As we move toward Easter, what is it you want Jesus to do for you? If you want freedom from your self-seeking so that you can live a life of service and love like he loves, well, that's exactly what he's here to provide for you. And he delights to do that. So what do you want Jesus to do for you? Let's pray. Father, we were hopelessly blind. No one told us to live in rebellion. That's what we wanted. And when we looked to Jesus, when we looked to the cross, we didn't see anything worth worshiping. But you were merciful to us, and you opened our eyes. Not because of anything we did. Not because we deserved it. Again, humanly speaking, it's, it would be, it's impossible for us to enter the kingdom of God. It's impossible for us to, to see past our blindness. But you were gracious and merciful. You didn't give us what we deserved. You gave us what we didn't deserve. And Lord, I pray that we would be marked by the same kind of life that Jesus did. That if we love him, for showing mercy on us when we didn't deserve it, that we would be a people that delights to do the same thing.
to show mercy, to show grace, to show love, to serve those, even those that don't deserve it. Sometimes those people may be in our own households. Sometimes those people may be in our workplace or our school. But may we be, to determine, be, be as determined as Jesus to live a life of sacrificial service for your sake. Because even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And may we follow him in that kind of life, even to the point where we'd be willing to lay down our life for the sake of someone else. Help us not to only think about doing that in some grand final way, but help us to think about doing that every day in many small ways. May we see the people in our lives not as hindrances to ministry. May we see them as the very ministry that you've entrusted to, them, to us. And may we be their servants. And this isn't to suggest that this life is going to be dull and, and hopeless and hard. It will be hard, but it will also be a life full of joy. At one point earlier in this conversation, Peter had asked, what do we get? We've left all these things and followed you, Jesus. And what does Jesus say? He says, you will receive back a hundredfold now in this life and in the life to come. Anything that you've left, there are no sacrifices. Anything that we've cast at your feet, you give it back to us a hundred times. Not only in eternal life, but even now. So a life of sacrificial service is also a life of great joy. Jesus is our example again. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. May we find our great joy in serving others, in laying down our lives, in being a servant of all, for the glory of your Son. Pray in his name. Amen.